What's up, guys? It's your girl, Ginger, the true crime queen. I'm reminding you now that listener discretion is always advised. That dark nature of the show is not suitable for young ears or those that are sensitive to graphic material. But without further ado, let's get it. Welcome back, my lovely listeners. For this episode, I decided to do something a little different and cross over to the dark side. Yeah, we're going Pacific Northwest cults today. We're going to learn all about the Rajneeshis. It's a lesser known cult slash movement that took over an entire town in rural Oregon via illegal immigration, wiretapping, and drugged their entire community. They poisoned the neighboring city and later attempted to assassinate the U.S. District Attorney of Oregon. This isn't our average true crime murder story. We're not talking no Lori and Chad Daybell type of cult here, but more like a free-loving hippie sex cult that was ran by some pretty extreme people. It's just downright fucking bananas, honestly, and something you probably didn't know about and I thought I should share with you. As far as cults go, this group seems to be the least culty cult that I know of. There's no sacrificial bullshit or abuse that I know of, so that's a plus. So let's start with the leader slash founder of the Rajneeshi movement. The man who started it all was given the birth name of Chandra Mohan Jain, but no one really knows him by that name. He's much better recognized as the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. And he ends up, again, changing his name later to simply Osho. It's much more likely that you've actually seen one of his Osho quotes written on some chalkboard art at your spiritual auntie's house. But to keep things straight here, we're just going to refer to this dude as Bhagwan or the Bhagwan. Followers of Bhagwan and his teachings have many different names, though, including the Rajneeshis, the Oshoites, Sannyasins, Orange People. That one makes more sense later. So who is the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh? Well, he's sometimes considered a con man if you ask the American government, but way before that, this Indian spiritual meditation guru would actually gain quite the following by first working as a well-known motivational speaker at the University of Jabalpur over in India. He explains he originally became enlightened back in 1952 while sitting under a tree at the age of 21. From then, he went on to school, he began touring and lecturing, and in the 1960s, Bhagwan started becoming a pretty well-known figure in India, and his public lectures were beginning to gain lots of attention. He had a tendency to speak pretty critically on aspects of socialism and the teachings of Gandhi, as well as most other mainstream religions at the time. He's basically for less socialism, more capitalism. In his eyes, capitalism will benefit India not socialism. And this, of course, attracts businessmen. He's basically building a foundation for this new and different idea of spirituality that just kind of seemed more open-minded than what the times and the culture around him were apparently experiencing. For his own movement, he would preach about the benefits of hundreds of different types of meditation and everyone's personal ability to be their own Buddha, wherein you and everyone else each hold the capacity of total enlightenment. He really didn't believe in being too serious about anything and almost presented himself as like the anti-religion. 
You can almost physically imagine this guy as like Michael Myers in The Love Guru, but he really doesn't have to try that hard and he's a lot older. By 1966, Bhagwan officially quit his job lecturing and officially became the guru he envisioned himself to be. Now here's one of the hundreds of famous quotes that he has. Be realistic. Plan for a miracle. Yeah, so honestly, it's kind of hard to summarize what this guy's getting at, but this one's a little easier. My meditation is simple. It does not require any complex practices. It is simple. It is singing. It is dancing. It is sitting silently. Honestly, he's not the craziest guy I've ever seen who's sometimes considered a cult leader. Truthfully, this cult is pretty chill for the most part, but like most other cults, it's really the leaders who eventually fuck everything up and ruining it for everybody. Now don't get me wrong, those two quotes I just mentioned aren't bad by any means, but there are some other quotations I found regarding, quote, rights to life and ideas of like euthanasia that even I found a little bit controversial. So I think some of these quotes were probably to get people in the door and others were probably very off-putting, to say the least. But every religion or cult or movement, I suppose, has some extreme beliefs. So it's not too crazy. Anyways, starting in the 1970s, the Bhagwan and his mostly chill beliefs had become so popular that he began initiating disciples who would then be given the title of sannyasins, which is basically like an official follower of the Rajneeshi movement, someone who has essentially mastered the ways and communication of the great Bhagwan Rajneesh. This also meant that they have to drop their birth name and adopt a new one for their new spiritual identity. By 1972, the Bhagwan had initiated over 3,800 sannyasins. By 1974, and after meeting a very rich Greek heiress, the Bhagwan was actually able to establish his own ashram, which is like a big-ass meditation center, and all of his followers could come there to visit and pay their respects to the Bhagwan, learn his ways of meditation, get special kinds of therapy, that sort of thing. It's like a retreat center, almost. And this was, and still is, located in the middle of Pune, India. Apparently, some videos had been released of some therapy sessions from back in the day, that were promoting these new forms of meditation as ways to cure your sexual hangups. And these recordings literally showed, like, a group of half-naked men and women literally just screaming their heads off and wrestling each other to the ground. And I think it really intrigued people, to say the least. So basically, the Bhagwan's apparently able to establish this first ashram with the financial backing of several entrepreneurs who either followed him or more than likely had the intentions of essentially capitalizing on all these Western people of the 1970s, like back during that hippie era, who were sort of just like spiritually lost and looking for their place in the world. Because this place was bringing in 30,000 people per year at the time. And the Bhagwan was able to captivate these people as he preached about the importance of meditation and self-love and mindfulness and most controversially, he was very vocal about advocating for the openness to human sexuality, which ultimately deemed him the boss-ass title of the sex guru. Which I'm sure he isn't upset about, honestly. He would even end up making his own music for a little while there, where he's essentially selling his tapes and his merch, and they'd be available for purchase at his ashram. 
and later pretty much everywhere you could buy religious media, and it's still available today, actually. So he was really managing to gain some major clout, and literally these people from all over the world would come to India to see him in person after hearing what this man has to say, literally laying money at his feet. You can kind of think of him as like president slash cult leader of this new movement, and he eventually establishes a bit of a crew, some strong-ass females as his like right hands to run the day-to-day operations of the ashram and the therapy-slash-meditation services that they offer. And by 1980, there was said to be an official following of over 10,000, and pretty soon they're gonna need some more ashrams. So the Bhagwan reportedly sends off his personal secretary, a woman named Lakshmi, to go out and look for a wide-open, peaceful place where all their loyal followers could come and just live the way they want to. A place for his people to just thrive and exist in, like more than an ashram, a utopia. But it turns out that the Indian government wasn't too fond of the Bhagwan's impression on society, and possibly failure to pay his fair share of taxes, So he begins running into some problems when he tries to establish more ashrams throughout India. So he's going to need to find somewhere else to go if he wants to continue growing his empire without issues. Soon though, it apparently occurred to the Bhagwan that he didn't have to put up with the Indian government because his secretary's secretary, a woman named Ma Anand Sheila, then came to the Bhagwan and was like, Hey, you know, there's, there's this place called America. And, you know, they say it's the home of the free and you can do, like, whatever you want. The land of the free. Which is not necessarily true, but I pick up what she's putting down. And he's like, holy shit, that might just be crazy enough to work. So boom, Bhagwan drops the unsuccessful secretary Lakshmi and upgrades to the much more obviously resourceful Sheila. Now this woman Sheila is literally a whole ass story in herself. But when she's 18, she's basically sent over to America by the Bhagwan to get an education and ground her feet in America. And she was said to have attended and graduated from Montclair State College. While attending school in New Jersey, Sheila meets and ends up marrying a man who loves her, has a fatal disease, and apparently has some shmoney, y'all. This guy ended up dropping literally 5.75 million in 1983 for her to secure this huge-ass plot of land in the middle of fucking nowhere, Oregon, so Sheila could help her leader, the Bhagwan, carry out his vision of letting his followers have a place to call their own. An oasis for Rajneeshis, a literal town for only people who practice this way of life and whoever wants to join them. Despite the Bhagwan's popularity, though, and relatively young age, he was said to have suffered a few different health ailments. In 1981, when he was 50 years old, Bhagwan was reportedly diagnosed with a prolapsed disc in his back, for which he was able to qualify for a tourist visa to the United States under the presumption of medical issues that needed to be treated. Honestly, I don't even know if that's true or if it was just a ruse to get into America and, like, sit on his own throne, but this is about the same time that the Bhagwan is said to enter a period of silence, so he would no longer be holding these lectures... He's gained enough clout, he can sort of just like relax amongst his riches at this point while his vision starts unfolding. This is pretty much when Sheila, the vice president you could say, became the voice of the community. Sheila's considered like the female right hand to the Bhagwan and only she 
would ever be able to speak to him directly during this entire period of silence that he takes. So in 1983, the Bhagwan then relocates himself to America for treatment, but then summons 150 lead sannyasins, like his day one followers, from Pune, India, all the way over to the United States, to this teensy, tiny-ass little town called Antelope, Oregon. There was this ginormous plot of land that Sheila and her well-off husband had secured. It was previously known as the Big Muddy Ranch and was about 65,000 acres, square in the middle of central Oregon State. Now, this area is so large, it entered into two different neighboring counties. And we're talking like dry, dusty, rocky, not level, not easy to move on, not easy to grow anything in type of land. But they did the damn thing. Construction of this utopia, essentially, consists of 150 people building with intentions of eventually housing 10,000 people per the Bhagwan's vision. So they begin making roads, bringing in housing, building actual infrastructure for plumbing and electricity to power over 10,000 small homes. These 150 people literally built an entire self-sustaining city out of mostly nothing. This was really no easy feat, but at the end of all their hard work, they literally had a whole ass town. They had a fire department, they had little restaurants, they had a shopping mall, an actual airstrip for the Bhagwan's private jets. They had public transportation, like buses and shit. They managed to cultivate a huge organic agricultural area where they grew tons of fruits and vegetables for harvest and use in the city. They even had a fucking sewage reclamation plant, you guys. Like, these weren't just a bunch of idiot followers. They were like lawyers and doctors and electricians and city planners. All those type of people who also happened to be followers of the Bhagwan and just wanted a place to utilize their skills and simply live as sannyasins. Just think about that. Like, 10,000 like-minded people living in an intentional, self-sustaining community who really just want to farm and, quote, be good neighbors. I mean, like, fuck, I would join. But there were already people who happened to live in this area right next to where all this is being built. About 39 people, to be exact. And these people are like real simple life folk. This is Oregon backcountry. These people typically just work hard. They don't bother no one. They live out in the country and they just keep to themselves. And all of a sudden, a bunch of city people dressed in orange and red, some of them foreign, some of them hippie types, all moving in and literally setting up shop right in their backyard. This was quite a transition to have all these new people slowly moving into such a small, isolated area. And for the most part, these original townspeople were cool with all these newcomers, as long as they weren't going to be like troublemakers or anything crazy like that. These country people don't quite know what to expect. They had never heard of this free love sex guru or his group of minions before. So... Welcome to the Rajneeshi movement. So they were seen as the orange people because followers of the Bhagwan would drape themselves in only orange or red clothing. Red shoes, red jackets, red pants, red dresses, all these different shades of red or orange. And the little clothing shops that these people had built in their town only offered clothes in the color red. And we're really getting some major cult vibes now, I'm not gonna lie. Could you imagine walking into a mall and literally only being able to choose from one color? Like, I personally feel that would be a fucking nightmare, but I 
think that'd also be less stress to sight in an outfit, I guess. Anyways, all these new people are out here looking like a fresh gang of bloods, basically. And all these organ people, all they see is all these red people working their asses off building a city. But every single day, they witness these orange people line up all along the road to watch their great leaders, Rolls fucking Royce, drive down a dirt road so that he can do his daily greetings to his followers. It's a big ass thing they do every single day. He literally has a crew of people that will like quickly run out and line up this long red carpet outside the Rolls Royce and do a little once over with their mini dirt devil vacuum so that the Bogwan's feet don't actually have to touch dirt. Then he gets out of his $80,000 car and walks down this long red carpet lined with a hundred or more people literally crying from being in his mere presence. There's literally a helicopter flying overhead, dropping out flower petals, so like the whole experience seems more magical. And they do it every day. He's pretty much a god to these people, and all he does is walk down the carpet and hold his hands in a praying position, and if you're lucky enough, you might get some eye contact or a smile, maybe a head nod from this guy. He's like the combination of all four beetles in one man or something. Eventually, as his health gets worse too, he doesn't even leave the Rolls Royce, he just kind of sits and waves from his window like he's Princess Diana. Now, remember, the 1970s were a pretty big time for the scarier cults, like the Manson family and Jim Jones and that shit, which brought a little bit of prejudice by the time the 80s came around to something like this big old commune, where these people wear all the same color and the red carpets are rolled out for this dude, who just smiles and nods all the time. But honestly, the Bhagwan has it made in the shade with a glass of lemonade. And I bet you're probably like, how the fuck does this guy have the resources to build an entire city and roll around in a Rolls Royce back in the 80s? And I'll tell you, lots and lots of very giving, very rich followers who donate to his foundation, where of course there's legal loopholes to reduce taxes. There's also investors fronting this heavily growing operation of like meditation centers, almost like in a, a chain of meditation centers. And the movement is slowly able to acquire other businesses like hotels and nightclubs in more popular cities. And all this money is being funneled back to the movement. I read somewhere though during my research that the Bhagwan supposedly had a budget set for the purchase of two Rolls Royces per month. Yeah. Now that's some fucking money you guys. That's, that's a lot of money coming in. So life is pretty good in the little hood of Antelope or Rancho Rajneesh, as it's sometimes called. It's cool for a while. More followers begin hearing of the new place that they can come and live at with the Bhagwan himself. There's free housing, free food, free sex, free beer. Literally every day, hundreds of more people are quitting their jobs and selling off all their shit and heading to Oregon to stop doing that nine to five day in, day out grind and moving to a community where you actually feel like you're a part of something bigger and better, which I get. That sounds awesome. I mean, you could work in the fields where they grew their own food. You could help make the houses. You could help organize the city streets. Like, that's the kicker. These people actually seemed really happy to be free of the pressures of, like, regular society. And that really appealed to people. So the movement would continue to grow literally every day. And more and more people are moving there. With the vice president, essentially, Sheila buying up all the for sale plots of land in the city right next to the people who had lived there for years unbothered. And soon the original townsfolk are getting a little uneasy with the overwhelming amount of new people and their 
proactive ways of life, I'll say. They begin to introduce some new literature circulating through the little city streets about this whole new idea of free love, which of course triggers these old God-fearing Christians. And they're not so sure if this Bhagwan guy and his followers are respectable people or not. So there seems to be a bit of a divide that happens between the people of Antelope and these Rajneeshi people. And from what I understand, the issue started when the Rajneeshis were getting denied business permits that were being filed in the city of Antelope per Sheila. So she was starting to get blackballed from the city council members who had been there for years. She figured, fine, we'll just run this city. So she literally goes out and runs for city council elections in Antelope and immediately wins the majority vote because there's only like 39 people in the city and she literally just brought like easily 500 more there. But now not only do these orange people have their own like 65,000 acre ranch, but now they have a whole ass town with 39 disgruntled residents. And Sheila starts filing paperwork to have the city's name changed from Antelope to Rajneesh Param. And they soon resumed buying up all the unused lots in the area and, just to be petty, started converting them over to nude sunbathing areas. And you do get a lot of sunshine in these parts of Oregon. So the entire city council was then replaced. The town's school board was apparently then replaced too. Sheila initiated something called the Peace Force as opposed to a police force to obviously keep the peace between everyone in the city. And all these older people who still live there are pissed about these new upgrades too. All these people walking around naked and shit. The townspeople would later refer to this joke of a peace force as more of a harassment force, actually. Pretty soon, though, other counties are getting a little uncomfortable with the idea of this, like, ever-growing, free-loving community perhaps growing so big that they're going to take over our city next, which brings in some way bigger authorities into the picture. Those worried about a Rajneeshi takeover would raise issue with whether Rajneesh Param could even be considered a legitimate city or not because of the way in which it was obtained. And other people were kind of worried about the legal issues of mixing church with state now that the religion was running the school and the police force essentially. Some were upset with the way that these people freely express their sexuality. And lastly, a lot of people couldn't get over how much money the Bhagwan seemed to be receiving from his followers. Like, obviously anyone outside the movement just had this whole other idea of how these people are running this town and didn't like the way that it was going, while everyone inside the movement felt it was simply a better way of life and didn't understand why others had such a problem with it. So Sheila seems to have to wear a lot of hats. She's kind of like the bottom bitch who literally organizes this entire community's growth and progression. So she would soon gather herself up a little gang of women who personally assist her in overlooking aspects of the community. Now these women would surround Sheila day and night pretty much until she would have her daily meetings with the Bhagwan on matters concerning the movement. And the Bhagwan was still there, but he was more of like a presence and an idol than in like an active participant in the meditations and the lectures at this point. So the Rajneeshis would then basically start to feel discriminated against and there's nothing more maddening to Sheila than being told that she can't do something apparently. But this is America and she's of the mindset that the good people of Rajneesh Param will not be brought down by close-minded and in her opinion like ignorant people. They just don't understand how we're living. 
And at the Bhagwan's encouragement, apparently, Sheila then begins doing lots and lots of interviews with the media as a showcase to the movement. She comes off very protective and, like, quite the spitfire in some of these appearances, where her beliefs are more challenged than others. Lots of people wouldn't know really anything about these so-called orange people until they saw Sheila, like, representing, where she came off, like, honestly, a strong, opinionated, badass bitch, really. The way she handled the media is almost enough to appeal to some people to join the movement alone. Listen to the way she speaks about her people and her leader like she is spicy mommy hot tamale very beautiful city a city one which has never existed on the universe where people live in harmony people live in love beautiful city example for the universe it's a ridiculous comparison our way is of living not of suicide we are life-affirmative, not life-negative. A thousand Friends of Oregon says that their intention is to see this place dismantled. Good, so they can come. They're most welcome. I'll be right on the road. They need to drive over me. It's their choice. I will paint their bulldozers with my blood. I'll be proud to be under those bulldozers. You think it'll get to that point? If they're not aware of my determination, I think... They're stupid, they're unintelligent. We had never had interest in antelope before and now, except for our survival. We want our city to be developed. And if this city goes, then of course we will have a Rodney Shpuram. Either way, we are the winner. Last July, the 40 residents of Antelope learned they were about to acquire some new neighbors, several hundred followers of the spiritual leader, Bhagwan Shri Rajneesh. First, we're going to hear from the Rajneesh Foundation, and it's a fascinating story. Would you welcome as president Maanand Sheila? Isn't your leader the free sex guru? Free sex, we don't charge for it, if you mean that. Right. <laughs> we are the only community which has no venereal diseases, no crime, no drugs, no alcoholism. And I'll tell you about one more thing, that we are the only people who enjoy sex fully. <laughs> Sheila, whatever your plans are, we don't want the Rajneeshis. We don't want the orange people in our town. What can I say? Tough titties. She was off the maps, I tell you. The Bhagwan has from four to 13 Rolls Royces. Let me add, it is 17 Rolls Royces. 17? On the second, there will be 20 Rolls Royces. Is your religion any more than a money-making exercise? Our religion is probably the only religion which has synthesized capitalism and religion together. It's a very good marketing exercise, isn't it, for those people who have fallen for it? It's wonderful. It works. Yeah, I know. I've seen the money and that's generated. by the way, if you happen to be a Christian, and if you are a Christian, you ought to look at Vatican and its business too. They are very lousy business people, too, by the way. By your standards, probably lousy lovers, too. Absolutely. They only know missionary position. <laughs> well, good luck to anyone else who wants to join your Rajneshis and pay money to the Bhagwan. And uh, also good luck to Pemberton. Thanks for talking with us. Good luck to you and your pimps. That's the very religious Ma Anand Sheila. 
I think most controversially was the movement's openness with sex. Rajneeshi members would apparently wear specifically colored beads to represent their sexual orientation, and everyone wore them openly. The disgruntled locals would claim that despite Sheila's adamancy that there is no sexually transmitted diseases within their community, there actually was some rampant cases of VD in the clap, which of course would whip right through this place the way sex is being promoted. Either way, this community was much more open about sex than most of the surrounding people, which made things a lot more uncomfortable for the nearby outsiders. Especially at night, apparently, when, you know, sounds travel much better over the desert hills and instead of wolves howling, it's a bunch of hippies moaning from experimenting with their sexuality. So yeah, the Bhagwan would mostly gain the reputation for being super fucking rich because of his ever-growing collection of Rolls Royces literally adding one to the collection every month or so. At one point, he literally had 94 fucking Rolls Royces out in the middle of nowhere, desert Oregon. And for what though? Literally just to drive a different one every day. But really, it's to make the Bhagwan seem special and luxurious. Basically, it's all for show, purposely to catch the eyes of, you know, material-driven people into this lifestyle. Mo rich people, mo money, mo money, mo Rolls Royces. People are sad, jealous, and thinking that Rolls Royces don't fit with spirituality. I don't see that there is any contradiction. In fact, sitting in a bullet cart is very difficult to meditate. A Rolls Royce is the best for spiritual growth. Bhagwan Rajneesh. So mainly, Sheila's just talking a bunch of shit until July 29th of 1983 when a small hotel that was owned and operated by the movement over in the popular city of Portland, Oregon, called Hotel Rajneesh, was then reportedly attacked. Three small bombs were said to be set off in the early morning hours. Only the perp was injured from the blast, apparently losing some fingers in the process. This man was arrested and sent to the Oregon State Penitentiary for five years, but Sheila seemed to feel like this hit was a little too close to home. She took it as a personal attack. And then she used this as inspiration for the Rajneeshis to make their next major move, supplying the entire town with semi-automatic guns for their own personal protection. Yeah, not even kidding. So literally now the orange people are walking around like the military pretty much in this like three little block town. They even built a shooting range near the ranch where the people of Rajneesh Param could spend their free time working on their aim, and everyone around could hear the high-powered gun rifle going off all day long. Like, just a steady stream message of, you guys fucked with the wrong ones. So, fear is obviously growing, and the original people of Antelope are even more scared because the Rajneeshis are literally the equivalent of a street gang and they aren't exactly on good terms. The animosity would stay high for quite some time, and the people who disliked the movement most started referring to them as the Red Rats, literally like an infestation to the area. About half of the people who had lived in the area for generations finally decided to pick up their shit and get out before things got even worse, while literally others had nowhere else to go and were stuck there to just deal with this growing tension. In 1983, the state of Oregon was even said to file a lawsuit that would seek to revoke Rajneesh Param from even being considered their own incorporated city. 
However, there was apparently enough residents in the area that could vote against this petition, so that didn't work out. This just gave Sheila a bigger ego, too. And now the line is, like, in the sand? Sheila, Bhagwan, all the Rajneesh Param's leaders and residents felt as though that they were being pushed out of their own city, that they felt that they got legally and worked hard to build up. So Sheila, as, like, vice president of the Orange People, is making it clear that she's offended. She's disgusted with the way that Oregon's government is treating her and her people, and she isn't going to back down. She continues her media interviews, consistently stirring the pot and standing her ground. Mahadan Sheila has now admitted publicly that the Rajneeshi's goal is to take over Roscoe County. She says the takeover is for her community's self-protection. Do you want to control Roscoe County? Absolutely, now I do. And I will be the first person to campaign. It needs to be at a boiling point. So once and for all, it can evaporate. But a boiling point implies someone is going to get burned. So what? For humanity? Little burn? Here or there? It's worth it. You tell your governors, you tell your attorney general, and all your bigoted pigs outside, they touch any of our people, I will have 15 of their heads, and I'm in business. I tell you, the county is so fucking bigoted, it deserves to be taken over. And what we now know is that the Bhagwan and or Sheila were constantly moving like five steps ahead of everyone, and they actually had their eyes set on winning the next big county election. They're tired of not having a seat at the table, and they're going to continue building this empire. But at the same time, they're consistently growing more paranoid, I believe. They strategically start sending buses of sannyasins back out, literally all over the western United States, to showcase why it's so great to live at Rajneesh Param and be a follower of the Bhagwan. They had handfuls of people just out there passing out flyers, holding little shows, holding little lectures literally telling everyone and anyone that they could that they should stop what they're doing and come to Oregon where they can finally live as free people and stop being suckers to the man. This mainly appealed to those who are displaced from the war, young runaways, homeless people, others looking for their place. Like what displaced person in the 80s would say no to free love, free acceptance, free beer, and free housing? So this works really well. <laughs> Literally, thousands of people are being bussed in to Rajneesh Param. Their numbers are continuously growing every day, all for the strategic reason to win the next county election by being the majority vote of the voter pool. At its height, Rajneesh Param was said to house 4,000 followers under this Share a Home program, where these homeless people were invited into the community. 
But that's not all they're going to do. And I'm sure really of whose original suggestion this next idea would have actually been, whether it was from the Bhagwan, Sheila, or one of the, you know, lieutenants, but someone in the group thought it would be an even greater tactic to incapacitate the majority of the outside voters in the area by making them sick so as to hopefully win the upcoming elections for two out of three seats in Wasco County. This would surely continue the growth and manifestation of the movement. The theory being that most of the people who would be voting against the Rajneeshi candidates would be too sick to like get off the toilet and go down and vote, and surely Rajneesh Param would win the elections. So no shit, it was then arranged for Salmonella to be cultured and brought in to 10 different restaurants in the Dowles area, which is about 80 miles east of Portland, and was actually home to about 11,000 residents at the time. Salmonella is usually caused from bacteria that isn't properly cooked out of like eggs and meat and poultry, and it also comes from bacteria made from animal feces, and it will make you fucking sick. So, apparently, multiple times between August and October of 1984, it's known that the persons doing this contamination would smuggle in little small containers of salmonella-tainted dressings and salsas and other items and add them into the public salad and salsa bars at these restaurants. Some people said the containers were, like, hidden up the sleeves so the people could just drop the food on whatever it looked like they were going to be scooping up at, like, buffet-style restaurants. Over 150 people began developing violent stomach issues, cramping, diarrhea, and vomiting, and their dehydration would continue to cause delirium oftentimes. 751 people in total were poisoned, and 45 of those ended up being in the hospital with such bad conditions. Thankfully, no one died. Somehow, someway. So then the health department comes in and ends up suggesting that the cause of the local outbreak was likely due to improper food handling because they weren't able to find a single source of contamination and couldn't trace the outbreak back to any of these random establishments. They couldn't identify if the salmonella was coming from like the lettuce, the olives. So they just assumed that all these restaurants at the same time were mishandling their food. Right, okay. On top of that, a man named Bill Hughes, among a couple other men actually, weren't afraid to call out the Rajneeshis for somehow being responsible for this random outbreak. He personally believed that he and another county commissioner had intentionally been given tainted glasses of water while they were out visiting the commune for inspection. He also got super sick after leaving Rajneesh Param, but couldn't be sure it was caused deliberately or not until there was more proof. But the Rajneeshi leaders, again, Sheila, acts super offended and, of course, denies, quote-unquote, these unbelievable, unfounded allegations. Apparently, no one at the time could prove that these red rats were responsible for this, but that wouldn't stop people from trying. And this has been proven to be true. Since then, the members involved has since confessed, so this is not a fucking rumor. This really happened the way I just described, with the lead women from the commune dressing in regular clothes and making lunch trips to at least 10 different places in the Dalles and dropping in bits of tainted food. This act has been named the single largest biological warfare attack in the U.S., which is up there with, like, anthrax-type shit. Truthfully, too, the real scary part about this is that this was supposedly just a trial run 
before the actual elections. So had a few of these people not caught on to the scandal, it's very possible people could have actually ended up dying during a bigger attempt to poison more people. There's also talk too that the original plan was to somehow poison the local water supply. Honestly, that's fucking terrifying. So the county elections coming up, the actual county that the Rajneeshis were trying to take over, decided that they weren't going to allow any of their newly relocated residents to register to vote. Because this is an obvious attempt at stealing an election. So officials in Wasco County were like, no, all your voter registries are invalid. You cannot vote in this election because you haven't lived in the area long enough. That type of thing. And this pisses off this big-ass group of displaced people within the commune, as well as the rest of the Rajneeshis, because they believed their leaders had followed all the rules and that the government was basically just jealous of their way of life. So they got all these angry new members in the commune who have pretty much been gaslighted into believing society just doesn't want them and they're unwanted products of capitalism. And these men are getting, like, so upset. They're starting fights with other members. They're starting to, like, wreck shit. They're literally starting a riot at the community because they're so mad about this. Sheila was supposedly somewhat attacked while trying to calm everyone down. So to curb this extra rioting, Sheila's personal assistants would then drug the commune's daily servings of beer. Apparently everyone was allowed two beers per day. So the people preparing this beer added a little bit of stuff to their beer that night that would make them chill out and stop destroying shit. And the next day, when everyone was cool again, Sheila announced that everyone involved in the rioting from the previous day was to leave the community immediately. Because all this drama is going on in the community, the Wasco County elections would end up actually having the biggest voter turnout in the county. And I don't know if the Rajneeshi candidates ended up withdrawing from the election or if they just straight up lost. But either way, Sheila is really mad that this whole plan didn't work out. So instead, because she has this image of being super resourceful for the Bhagwan and her position of power being threatened by the Oregon government, she had apparently decided that she had enough and she was really going to show everyone who they were messing with. Amongst Sheila's group of personal assistants, a plot was created to assassinate the state's district attorney at the time, Charles Turner. Sheila's gang had apparently arranged for the purchase of some throwaway guns with silencers and literally stalked the district attorney outside his office in Portland, Oregon, waiting for him to come out so that they could ambush him, and luckily he wasn't seen that day. So the women had to drive all the way back, empty-handed and unsuccessful. And this shit didn't come out until later, when the ATF actually gets involved. But because the assassination attempt didn't work... Sheila's group reprioritizes and decides instead they'll just destroy all the evidence that's being compiled against them in the government offices. On January 14th of 1985, the Wasco County Planning Department offices were mysteriously set on fire and ended up burning half the office down that was said to house the long-running documents that were building against the Rajneeshis. And with all the media interest in this rich, armed group of free love and orange people and their sex guru leader in the middle of the Oregon desert, eventually some notable celebrities begin announcing their move to the commune. And at the same time, the Rajneeshis are building more centers and hotels and clubs in places like Los Angeles to further appeal to the masses. 
more followers means more donations, more donations, more money. So, of course, it would be in the best interest of the commune to appeal to the elite. So, a few of those big-time celebrities ended up moving into the area with these big old mansions that were built on the ranch where their rich friends could fly in using the Bhagwan's personal airstrip just to see what all the fuss is about. And the Bhagwan is, of course, showered in more money and gifts from these celebrities who are beginning to spend a lot more time with him than Sheila was. She essentially starts getting alienated from the Cool People's Club, I guess, where the Bhagwan wants to hang, and suddenly Sheila's getting real jealous and paranoid that her position as middleman between him and everyone else is being jeopardized. So Sheila, to gain control goes out and has her assistants arrange for almost every single home in the entire community to be bugged so that she can listen to the rumors and the talk amongst the community. All these recorded conversations were then listened over by specially selected people who would report back to her should they hear anything shady. And Sheila also instructed the Peace Force to observe and record all visitor license plates coming through the city, which was mainly just those, you know, 15 people or so now, who still live there and were still feeling harassed by the Rajneeshis. These recordings, though, of all these bugged houses, would eventually turn out to be the biggest case of illegal wiretapping the United States had ever seen. And through these recordings, Sheila apparently learns that the Bhagwan is planning his own medically induced suicide, which is like the last thing she and the rest of his followers want. So she tries to flip the script and orders one of her personal minions to kill the Bhagwan's doctor before anything can be done to their sacred leader. And I'm not even kidding. When I say that one of these sheeple women who did anything that Sheila told them literally walked right up to the Bhagwan's doctor and tried to give him a hot shot of morphine in the ass cheek right in the middle of one of their daily service type things with hundreds of people standing around. She was just going to sneak up behind him and be like, ploop, shoot him up in the butt. But it failed horribly because this dude felt the needle poke and quickly turned around and grabbed her hand. And this bitch was able to toss the syringe of morphine over the crowd of people surrounding them and like dip the fuck out before the doctor could even figure out what happened. And after this, fearing that the doctor would rat out Sheila's assistant to the Bhagwan, Sheila and about 20 of her most hardcore followers then straight up leave the commune in the middle of the night out of fear of retaliation and exposure of their failed attempt. When the Bhagwan finds out that Sheila took off, he gets so fucking pissed that he comes out of his period of silence to talk shit about her. He's honestly probably really freaked out that she's going to turn on him for all the other shady shit that they were doing behind closed doors. So he instantly paints her as pretty much the brains of the entire operation, aside from like the spiritual shit. Anything illegal was of course going to be her fault and her fault only. And he claims he didn't know about the houses being bugged, the attempts to murder the governor or anyone else, and didn't know or have a thing to do with the food poisoning over in the Dalles. And pretty soon, Sheila and the Bhagwan are arguing over television, and everybody can watch it. The Bhagwan had a question for you. Did he? He said, somewhere here in Switzerland, tucked away in some bank accounts, he has lost over $40 million American. He doesn't know how to count money. You're not telling me you're penniless. Absolutely. 
When I left the ranch, I left with less than $10 in my pocket. Meanwhile, back at Rancho Rajneesh, the Bhagwan, that most enlightened man, seems to have been caught with his doty down. With all of that enlightenment, how could he miss Sheila's shenanigans? Enlightenment simply means I know myself. It does not mean that I know that my room is bugged. Enlightenment and bugging has no relationship. Would you like to have a look at what she has to say to you? <laughs> I know her mind. Bhagwan, it's time that you let people know who you are, the way I have come to know you, which is that on one hand you're a genius and a beautiful man, and on the other hand, you really exploit people by using their human frailty and emotions. She's drugged. She's on hard drugs. He says you tried to poison his doctor, his dentist, his caretaker, that one of your assistants jabbed his doctor, <laughs> jabbed his doctor in the butt with a poison needle. <laughs> That's very nice. Did she do a good job? The doctor apparently is still alive. Then obviously she didn't do a good job. And I guarantee if she was my assistant, she would have done a good job. Why is Bhagwan so bug-eyed? Was he a drug user behind those closed doors? He did use quite a lot of uh, medicines. For instance, Bhagwan was taking 60 milligrams, not 16, 60, 60 milligrams of Valiums a day. I also know that um, he was not afraid or hesitant of trying any drug that relieved him from pain or relieved him from... Uh, or offered him a good sleep. And can you see in my eyes that they are drugged? Are you? An honest answer? Yeah. I often wondered what was in your eyes. Yeah, in my eyes there is something, but it is not drugs. <laughs> It can drug you. <laughs> you make him sound like a spoiled little boy, not a, he a holy man. He is a spoiled little boy. And it has nothing to do with being a holy man. I never did go to him because he was a holy man. I went to him because he was a man of my eyes. Love affair never ends. It can turn into a hate affair. She did not prove to be a woman. She proved to be a perfect bitch. <laughs> I love bitches. <laughs> Many of them. The Bhagwan, who may be watching, says that if you ever meet again, you'll throw yourself at his feet and beg for mercy. Would he wish? That's his dream again.
not true, Pokorn. No. One thing I have is my dignity. And that was a problem for you. You know it too. She has no dignity. All dignity that she thinks she has was given by me. She was just a hotel waitress. And I made her almost a queen. I have never made love to her. That much is certain. Perhaps that is the jealousy. She always wanted. But I have made it a point never make love to a secretary. <laughs> Sometimes it does seem like a lover's quarrel, but what an expensive one. Sheila says she's broke, but Baguan has all of those diamond watches, and he's got 91 of these, hasn't he? He spent it all. He doesn't have any left. We used to spend two and a half million a month. Out of it, quarter million for sure for Baguan a month. He spent a quarter of a million dollars a month? Mm, for sure. And it was just a pain in the neck. And the last thing, because the truckers didn't want to deliver the Rolls Royces down at the ranch because of the road. Then, just to pick up Rolls Royces, I was supposed to buy a quarter million dollar truck to pick up the Rolls Royces. You said also that the Bhagwan was really not the slightest bit interested in enlightenment. So it was a con. Absolutely. You, as the queen, presided over an empire built on a gigantic con. Yes, I did preside over it. Anybody who cannot experience it, it will look like a con. But look around my people and you will not find more rejoicing people anywhere. Rejoicing even as they hand over their millions? Yes, it's still rejoicing. I sell contentment. I sell enlightenment. Sila could not get it because she has a very third-rate mind. You were quite a good con team, you and the Bagua. I wouldn't say con team. We were a good team. He had the dream, the vision, and I had the ability to put it in practice from practical point, to realize it. She is just going more and more insane before she goes to imprisonment. You just wait. Either she will kill herself out of the very burden of all the crimes that she has done, or she will have to suffer her whole life in imprisonment. What's going to happen to your holy man? Bhagwan had always told me that when things get too difficult for him, he will sit in his chair, take an injection, and disappear. Also to fund Sheila's little group, she actually did a full-page spread with 
nude pictures to sell her side of the story so her and her 20 followers could continue feeding themselves and stay hidden away from the Bhagwan, who they believed had the resources to have them killed if he so wished. And we all just heard him say what he just said. Back at the ranch too, since Sheila was pretty much the leader of the commune and had been since its creation, the people were like, oh my god, what the fuck is going on? And she was immediately replaced since she dipped out, of course. And the new leadership role was handed over to the rich celebrity because she, of course, had the access to some of the fanciest resources at this point in the game. This woman was more than happy to be so quickly hand-chosen by the Bhagwan to run his community. And this fight between the Bhagwan and Sheila actually worked against both of them because it finally launched an investigation into all the alleged crimes that they were blaming on each other. Apparently, it was only then found out by investigators that the Bhagwan had apparently moved to America to escape pending charges from India's government for tax evasion. So now every other entity in America is getting involved, finally, launching a full-scale investigation into every aspect of the community. So the FBI goes in and finds literally hundreds and hundreds of these tape recordings in a crazy-ass bunker that was built underneath Sheila's home in the event that they ever needed to hide the Bhagwan for safety reasons. The American Immigration and Naturalization Service, INS, next comes in and uncovers this huge-ass immigration fraud scheme within the community where natural American citizens were being paired up with people on tourist visas, and they were being sent off to other states to apply for marriage licenses and then they would return to Rajneesh Param months later so as to not raise red flags about this scheme here. This was one of the biggest immigration fraud schemes America has ever uncovered. Finally, the United States Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, will come in and find these containers and vials of bacteria that were found to be microscopically similar to salmonella right there at their Rajneeshi Medical Laboratory located right on the ranch. It's pretty much all the proof they needed to verify the claims and the rumors made by Bill Hughes. The plasma profiles pulled from those people who had gotten sick from the outbreak were then compared to the samples found at the ranch, and they were said to be identical profiles. And it turned out that this particular strain of salmonella that they were growing was actually an even more rare strain of salmonella. It only accounts for 2% of cases in food poisoning, making it like the perfect evidence of a technically bioterror attack. Lastly, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, the ATF, would come in and double-check everything is legit with all the guns that the Rajneeshis were said to have owned. And while there, ATF ends up finding a shit ton of unregulated amounts of prescription sedatives, the same ones that were used to calm all those angry homeless people who were literally just used for their votes, basically. So obviously the Bhagwan is in some deep shit. He's the literal face of the entire movement, and he can't have this, so he just literally dips the fuck out. In the middle of the night, on his personal jet, he takes off. He apparently tried to fly to Bermuda, where he would be able to escape extradition, and hopefully any future prosecution of these crimes, but when his plane had to stop and refuel in South Carolina, federal agents were already waiting in the terminal for him. They were said to have found him hiding behind one of the seats on his jet. 
So they arrest him right on the spot and quickly return him over to Oregon, where he has to await a federal trial in jail. Seeing their leader behind bars and in handcuffs was really, really upsetting to his followers who didn't quite understand what was going on just yet. All they saw was their frail, old, sick guru being further chastised by the man. The women involved in these crimes, Sheila and a couple of her assistants, were also then raided and arrested on October 28th of 1985 while hiding out in their West Germany apartment. They were also extradited back to the United States for their own trials. Sheila was initially charged with attempted murder of the district attorney, Charles Turner, assault, wiretapping, arson, immigration fraud, as well as her part in what they considered the bioterror attacks. And during his trial, the Bhagwan apparently admitted to immigration fraud, being that he lied on his visa when he said he was here for medical care and for some reason that was found not to be true. So he takes an Alfred plea where he basically concedes and agrees to the charges. He's forced to pay over $400,000 in fees. And part of this agreement means that he'll have to get the fuck out of America and can never come back. And I don't believe he was ever really charged specifically with anything to do with the poisoning of 751 people. I believe that was said to be more of a side gig by Sheila and her gang. So the people of Oregon and the media who had grown disgusted with the movement were literally dancing in the streets. They were selling t-shirts and shit. And Johnny Carson and his entire audience is singing Bye Bye Bhagwan on like the late night television shows. They're so happy to get this guy out of America. So Bhagwan returns to his original still operating ashram in Pune and basically does a revamp of the whole entire movement. He announces that members are now allowed to wear whatever color they want. And the old book regarding Rajneeshi ways are said to be burned away along with that nasty Sheila's old red robes to signify basically the death of the whole experience, I guess, and the birth of a new one. At this point, the community in Oregon pretty much starts dying out and the people that were left there had to slowly move out as they realize it's really no longer a place that they can call their own anymore. Then their leaders aren't going to come back. In 1985, the land was put up for sale for $28 million and would later be sold at a sheriff's auction for just $4.5 million. All that's left now is the airport landing strip and some cement slabs where Sheila and some of the celebrity homes once stood. Sheila and an assistant or two of hers would also end up taking Alfred Police too. Sheila technically ended up serving 29 months. That's only two and a half years before being paroled for good behavior. After admitting to the intentional salmonella poisoning on 751 innocent people. I don't feel like that was enough time, but upon her release, her green card was also revoked and she's never allowed to return to the United States ever again either. And Sheila is actually still alive, and I believe she lives in Switzerland, where she runs a nice little care home for the mentally disabled. By 1987, Bhagwan's health would begin fading at a much faster rate, apparently. Some of his followers even believe that somehow his mattress was purposely exposed to radiation somehow, and that he had radiation poisoning only on the right side of his body, and that would be why his health was fading so fast. I mean, that sounds more like a stroke to me, but I'm not a doctor, nor a follower, so I really don't know. The Bhagwan had apparently alleged himself that he had been poisoned while stuck in American prison. 
In January of 1989, the Bhagwan would officially pull a J-Lo and change his name from Bhagwan Rajneesh to simply Osho. And eventually, Osho, as he would forever be known as now, does end up passing away on January 19th of 1990. This hit his community of followers pretty hard. His official cause of death was ruled to be heart failure. His body was traditionally celebrated and set on fire, which seems pretty radical to Americans, but you can chill, it's all good. That's the norm in this situation, and his ashes were then placed in a specially built room in the ashram that still operates today. His headstone reads, Never died, only visited this planet Earth between December 11th, 1931 and January 19th, 1990. So he was really only 59 years old. Sheila still says it's fake news and believes that the Bhagwan was just finally able to successfully arrange for his intended suicide. If that's the case, I think it would be probably to finish out his legacy the way that he wants to. You know, he probably wants to be in control of the way that he dies. And after the land was sold off in auction, the area that used to be Rajneesh Param was actually bought up by some millionaire who had attempted to turn the land into a state park. But when that didn't work out, he eventually donated the whole estate to the Young Life Christian Youth Organization. So now the whole area is basically one big church camp. So one religion to the other. I believe that is still being used today as long as there's not a pandemic going on. And you can look this place up on Google Earth and see how the original people had actually built something out of literally nothing. Interesting too, there's a little monument that was created by the people who had stuck it out through that whole three-year debacle with this weird invasion of orange people. The monument reads, dedicated to those in this community who throughout the Rajneesh invasion and occupation of 1981 to 1985 remained, resisted, and remembered. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And this was like a reminder to them that the original community had overcome this temporary evil. Now, if you are familiar at all with this case, it might be from the Netflix documentary Wild Wild Country. I honestly must have clicked over this docuseries like 50 times before I actually read what, you know, the caption said about it. Because the title, I just thought it was about westerns and I just really wasn't interested in it. So you get watching this wild, wild country documentary and you learn that this is one of the craziest things I've ever heard of. And it's so close to my town and I didn't even know about it. Pretty much immediately, I was pissed at myself for not watching it sooner. And by the third episode, you're, you're honestly ready to join this fucking cult because you aren't aware of how weird it gets. The best part about seeing the footage of this community that was being built is just the vast majority of people that were losing their absolute goddamn minds about this old man and the crazy lengths that the higher up people would go to to remain in control this entire time. It's just nuts and I absolutely recommend watching it. It's about six or seven episodes I believe and almost every one of them is fast moving and it hooked me. I'd say definitely check it out, worth watching at least once and I'm so surprised more people don't talk about this cult. Some people may also recognize the story from Forensic Files. It's on an episode called Bioattack. It's also in the Netflix series uh, Collection 8, episode 33. And if you don't have Netflix, I also saved it to my YouTube in the Rajneeshi playlist if anyone's interested. Honestly, the story I told today is, is much, much more full of details. 
and involves a lot more people than what I just said. I kind of just skimmed the crazy ass shit that happened in general. So definitely check out Wild Wild Country. It not only has the perspective of Sheila, but also the townspeople that were on the other side of the whole thing. It's such an underrated little event that happened here in the Pacific Northwest. And even though this story is crazy as hell, I do believe that the people who resonate with Osho's beliefs are, in fact, very good-hearted people. And I honestly, I feel bad that a few rotten apples ruined their entire utopia for them. Despite everything that happened back in the 80s, Osho continues to live very strongly in the hearts of his followers every day, and that's okay. So yeah, that's the Rajneeshis. So I'm not sure if I've mentioned this on the podcast yet, but we recently went over the John Bonet case over on Patreon, if anyone's interested in diving down that rabbit hole with me. I managed to cover it in four parts, and $5 gets you access to those four, and the backlog of episodes covering the more infamous, controversial true crime cases like Scott Peterson and Darlie Routier. Quickly, I got a couple shout-outs to Missy, Mandy, Molly, Cindy, and Katie. Thank you guys all for joining the Patreon and supporting your girl and the show. Also, I have a thank you to 6chan6bell6, Solid Doer, and Anonymous0325 for all leaving some super sweet-ass reviews. Thank you guys, I appreciate it. And to the rest of y'all, if you enjoyed the show, please, please share an episode with a friend today. Maybe hit that follow or subscribe button where you can. Consider peeping that merch I just got for all you other true crime queens. As always, lock those damn doors, and obviously, stay away from cults, you guys. Shit never works out good when you're in a cult. And that was the tea. I hope you enjoyed my rendition of the story, and if so, please tell all your creepy-ass friends about it. You can find the sources I used for the episode in its description. You can find me slinging those memes on Instagram at True Crime Queen. If you'd like to support the podcast, check out patreon.com slash gingertheTrueCrimeQueen. Alright you guys, bye!